You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, groupthink is not allowed here at the conservative conscience. And this, again, is Daniel Horowitz back in the house on our mega network, our new network, the Blaze Media Network. Obviously, we are still conservative review, so fear not. Our voice has not been stifled. Our voice will only be augmented by this merger, as I mentioned earlier this week. And I'm telling you guys, if there was ever a time where you needed a safe space from false dichotomies, false priorities, false focus of even pseudo-conservative media, that time is now. Yesterday was kind of a slow news day, really slow news day, obviously as everything in government ground to a halt to honor and pay last respects to the late uh, former president, George H.W. Bush. But there's a lot going on now. Um, And I apologize if I can't even get to everything. I try to at least hit a lot of the major things I want to get between my columns, between this show. But if you don't get a chance to see it, always follow me on Twitter at RMConservative. That's where you'll see some other important stories you might miss that I'll highlight. And again, a lot of these things you're not going to hear anywhere else, which is... A very big problem. Very, very big problem. Uh, but first off, I just wanted to start off by saying, you know, just I, I didn't watch the funeral. I just saw the media coverage a little bit. And I think what's interesting is that the only good Republican to the media is a dead Republican. And I really mean that. It's it just funny watching them always extolling the virtues of the Republican from yesteryear that they just beat the garbage and stuffing out of the guy when he was actually alive and kicking and in power. And then once they're no longer in power and no longer threaten them, suddenly they're no longer a problem. And not only that, they use their legacy as a tool to fight the current straw man Republican leader. And sadly, he kind of is a straw man, as you're going to see throughout the show today. But, um, you know, they use him to say, oh, this is terrible. We used to be dignified. And then they use also uh, George W., the son. Wow, what a great person he is. I mean, all of us in this audience are old enough to remember. You know, it wasn't that long ago when they just dehumanized George W. Bush. I mean, they weren't nice to H.W. Bush either, but certainly his son. I mean, man, um, they, they went all out. You know, so a lot of voters on the Republican side said, look, I mean, we get no um, – no brownie points for nominating a guy to lead our party that's going to really be very tepid in fighting the left. So, you know, he may as well go to a guy like Trump. Now, unfortunately, Trump's not fighting them. <laughs> he's getting all the liabilities as if he is, but he's not. And that brings me to another point. You know, I was joking around with a friend yesterday. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 15 years from now, Whatever, you know, I don't want to put a limit on Trump's life. I'm just saying whenever Trump moves on to the next world, I wouldn't be surprised if the media 
starts extolling the virtues of Trump. Oh, the lost art of pragmatism of Republican presidents. He never was willing to shut the government down. And I say that because, you know, as we're talking before I went on the air, the House of Representatives passed this bill we were talking about, this two-week extension, which is de facto a permanent extension because that's what's going to happen on December 21st. It has the flood insurance program. It has the Violence Against Women Act extension there. But it contains nothing to address the invasion at our own border. Nothing. Nothing at all. Oh, we avoided a shutdown. And the Senate's going to pass it later today, both by voice vote, without a recorded vote. And the president's going to sign it. And, uh, oh, we avoided a shutdown. No, we didn't. We avoided no shutdown. We have a shutdown. We need to reopen our government. See, you know what? let, Let me tell you what a government shutdown is. Let me explain what a government shutdown is. A government shutdown is like what we like what we saw today from Fox News. Um, some of you might have seen it there. Some of you might have seen, um, what do you call it? I think it was from AP originally. The article: A Honduran woman. Now you look at her; she looks like she's fourteen. Now it says in the article she's nineteen. Who knows? Um, Let me read to you the article here. A Honduran woman is believed to be the first member of the migrant caravan to have a child in the United States after scaling the border wall with her family and giving birth within 24 hours. The move is likely to reignite the debate surrounding anchor babies and birthright citizenship. President Trump threatened in October to end birthright citizenship with an executive order, although others believe it would require a constitutional amendment. Mariuri Elizabeth Serrano Hernandez, 19, was more than seven months pregnant when she left Honduras along with her husband, Miguel Ortiz, 20. It's funny. I didn't think they had that business of not taking the man's name in Honduras unless they're not officially married. Um, And their three-year-old son traveling more than 2,000 miles. So... Folks, I'm just reading this now, and that means that she gave birth to the first one when she was 16. I want you to understand what's happening here. So let me me first um, just read a couple more paragraphs here. Late last month, they finally made their way to Tijuana, Mexico, where thousands of other Central Americans had gathered, hoping to cross into the United States. At the makeshift camp, Serrano Hernandez and her husband say they feared for their safety after being surrounded by Mexicans who weren't happy they were there. Scared and outnumbered, they decided to cross the border illegally. U.S. inspectors at the main border crossing in San Diego are processing up to about 100 asylum claims every day. Some desperate migrants are crossing the border illegally, avoiding the wait. Calling the birth in the U.S. a big reward for a family's journey, Serrano Hernandez told Univision, which documented parts of their journey, with the faith in God, I always said my son will be born here in America. 
After somehow climbing the border wall, Serrano, Hernandez, and her family were met by three Border Patrol agents who demanded they return to Tijuana. The family refused and asked for asylum. They were taken to the Imperial Beach Station in San Diego County for processing. Um, and eventually she was taken to the hospital um, and and gave birth. I'll link to this the rest of the article in show notes. I don't want to bore you by just reading it. Um, there is about five lessons to learn from here. So, again, keep in mind, in addition to the caravan, we have record numbers coming without a caravan. Thousands every day. It's going to be about a million in a year. Coming with families precisely because of our policies and the court's and the tepidness of this administration. By the way, Kirsten Nielsen lives on. She has more lives than the cat lady. She's evidently not being kicked out, I guess. So this is worse than under the Obama administration in terms of the magnets. They are coming in record numbers from Central America, bringing in drugs, bringing in gangs. And they could literally come. Now, the AP article made sure to say that Three to one ratio, they're males, just so you know. But there are some women, and there's pregnant women. There's a whole bunch of them. The AP article talks about that. And so we're, we're, we're letting them all in. We're letting in the caravan, too, despite Trump's promise, albeit 100 a day. And then the people that don't want to wait, so you have a pregnant woman scale the wall, come in, say, oh, asylum, asylum, when clearly it's, there's no persecution, she wants her son to be an American. Like she said, that's all it is. And boom, we now own this family that the kid's an American. He's going to get a birth certificate. She's a teenage pregnancy mom, two kids as a teenager. The most impoverished sort of family even for Americans, but they're Honduran. Most impoverished demographic of the most impoverished country. And we're saddled with this. We were never asked permission as a nation. Indeed, they don't have permission. And there's not a darn thing we can do about it. And Congress won't address it. Where is Trump's promise to end catch and release? Where is his promise to, end, to, to not let in the caravan? Where is his promise to enforce the public charge laws? Where is his promise about that executive order on anchor babies? No, instead, we have from Trump jailbreak and uh, tariffs. That are killing the economy now. That's a whole other story. I mean, really? I want you guys to go back. Google Trump inaugural address. And read what he said about the forgotten man. And then read what's happening now. Now, I know he still talks about that. But if you look at what he's actually doing. And sometimes he means well. But as I said, the problem is. We have a conservative movement pushing him to the left on jailbreak rather than pushing him to the right and getting him focused on vetoing the budget bill, giving these televised addresses, every piece of advice I've ever given. Even if it looks like he's gonna, he starts out with it, then he doesn't continue with it. And that's it. That, my friends, is a government shutdown. That is the shutdown of the underpinnings of why we have a social contract to have a government to begin with. Read the Declaration of Independence, and that's why we have a government. This is unbelievable. And by the way, 
think about this for a moment. If you haven't pondered it yet, just to hark back to this um, birthright citizenship stuff. So, you know, not to get back into that can of worms from October, but we we had a lot of podcasts and articles on it. Um, If you're ever uncertain, just Google this podcast or my name and the articles and birthright citizenship, and you'll see all this stuff come up. But we, we said a lot about it at the time. And, you know, the basis for the political class swamp mentality on this comes from the 1898 Wong Kim Ark decision by Justice Horace Gray. And we said at the time, this guy uses the word domicile in some sort of conjugation to describe those who he believes are entitled to birthright citizenship, those legal immigrants. They have to be domiciled in the United States. He used that term over 20 times in that decision, and then he qualified it explicitly so long as they are permitted by the United States to reside here. Yet they're telling us that Justice Gray was referring to a woman who scales the wall while pregnant, comes in and has a baby, and that's it. By the way, there's another story about um, uh, illegals pulling guns on border agents. So, like, what I want to know is if someone comes in and with a machine gun, shoots border agents, and then he has his wife, pregnant wife in back, and then she drops a baby on the ground. So he's a citizen. I mean, what's funny is even if you didn't have these statements from Wong Kim Ark and you went fully with the English common law definition of just solely and that you're attached to the soil by birth, they, they, that didn't apply explicitly to invaders. So, I mean, whatever. Anyway, this also proves the lesson of what I keep drumming into your minds with the border wall. The border wall is important in the right context. Only if you stop the self-immolation. The same way chemotherapy and cancer treatment is important if a cancer patient stops slitting his wrists. But if he doesn't, then it doesn't matter. This is a pregnant woman scaled a border wall. And again, a border wall matters if you don't have policies and magnets that say, Oh, don't come here. Oh, but if you come here, you could declare asylum. You could have anchor babies to citizenship. You could have welfare. Whatever you want, we'll give to you. And we'll actually prosecute those who try to keep you out, not prosecute you. And you're done. We're not going to prosecute you. We're not going to bar you from entering again. You have only what to benefit from. I mean, you listen to the statements when they give these Spanish language interviews, some of these people with Univision. Um, Part of the problem is a lot of us don't know Spanish. So, you know, we don't we're not privy to this and the media certainly is not going to expose it because it hurts their, their narrative. But if you go to the Spanish language media and I know we have some um, either natives of, of Mexico or children of Mexican immigrants in this audience. And I really appreciate a lot of you have sent me a lot of good material of what, what is going on in Mexico and how a lot of the Mexicans don't want this. Um, it keeps sending me, I appreciate it. And by the way, despite the merger, I still have the CRTV email dharowitz at CRTV.com. Um, I'm sorry if I haven't been able to respond to everyone. Just there's been an outpouring from so many people. Um, I really appreciate uh, all your comments, your uh, constructive uh, ideas. Keep, keep them coming. Um, we got a lot of good feedback on Foreign Policy Friday. We're going to try to have it again next uh, tomorrow with Jordan Jackdell. But anyway, it's a magnet problem. So. If we made illegal immigration illegal, if we made our border a border, then the border wall would help secure the border because then it's almost impossible to climb a fence 
and not get caught because it takes too long and you're too exposed and you don't want to get caught. But if you want to get caught, then you're going to climb it. So even if, I mean, you could say the fence he wants to build is better than this one. I'm not sure exactly which one in the Tijuana area she went over. I'm trying to picture which one it is. If it's the billiard one, if it's a solid one, um, you can make it better. But still, the drug cartels are, are already doing this and they're going to do this. They'll, they'll supply them with the equipment needed to scale the wall. That will be part of the Coyote experience. It's a lot cheaper and easier for them to do that than risk getting caught you know, between points of entry. There's no risk of getting caught anymore. They surrender themselves because it's lawfare. This story is very telling. It needs to be addressed immediately. And then as I keep mentioning, the forgotten American as it relates to um, – to, to the public charge issue. I mean, our buddies, Stephen Camerata, Karen Ziegler at Center for Immigration Studies, they put out a new census survey, and, and they use the data set from the census that includes illegal immigra- Im- immigrants. A lot of them have certain ways that they don't include them. And um, they found that 63% of households headed by a non-citizen reported that they used at least one welfare program compared to 35% of native households. What's so important about this is that, you know, our economy is going, our, our, our debt is going to hell in a handbasket because we refuse to cut spending. Not only don't we do that, we, we actually expand spending every single budget bill. And no one wants to do it. And to be fair, it's not just the political class. We, we're cowardly as a nation. You know, a big part of our citizenry, you know, they, they want to cut everything else, but, you know, don't affect me. So isn't the easiest no-brainer that at a time like this, at the very least, we could just not extrapolate the welfare state to 7.7 billion people in the world? But that's the problem. You see, the courts are now saying that the Constitution applies to all 7.7 billion people. So by extension, the welfare state's applying because they're now saying they have a right to come here, that there's nothing we can do to enforce our border or our sovereignty. So therefore, as a magnet, and they come. And once they come, they get the welfare state. And again, a lot of these clowns will say, Daniel, stop saying that. Illegal immigrants aren't eligible for welfare. Well, first of all, there's a lot of loopholes in that. um, And they certainly get refundable tax credits. But this gets back to the anchor baby issue, why it's so important. They all have – eventually have kids here, and they're eligible for, on behalf of that kid because that kid's an American citizen. I mean he's not, but we erroneously steal the sovereignty of the citizenry. I mean the government does and grants him a birth certificate. 50 percent. I mean it's bad enough 23 percent of Americans are on, are on Medicaid. 50 percent of immigrants in total are on welfare. And look, there's a problem with legal immigration too. There's still a number of legal immigrants that – you know, are not a public charge. But, you know, I put out before, and I'm going to link to it in my new article I have coming out on this. But, um, you, you, I went through the poverty rate and the welfare usage by country of origin. And you know where they come from. I mean, they're not the ones coming from Europe. They're not on welfare. Largely the ones coming from India, we have a lot of immigration from there. 
they're not on welfare either. A lot of the ones from far eastern Asia. But if you look at the Latin American countries, the third world type of countries, it's no surprise that if you don't – see, if you have a merit-based system, so it doesn't matter. They could be from a third world country, but they could have the merits and they're not going to be a public charge because they meet the criterion. But if you don't, then by and large, if you have chain migration, which perpetuates what we have, and then by the way, you have illegals gaming it out. So notice it's no coincidence that we have the most legal immigration from the countries where we have the most illegal immigration because they wind up litigating their way into status. And then you have illegal chain migration. By the way, another lesson, this woman, this 19-year-old girl, she said she's trying to um, reunite with family in Columbus, Ohio. So not only do we have legal immigration chain migration through just the front door visa system, we have illegal chain migration. They come here undetected, like the first wave of them, successfully come in. And then other ones just come in through the front door and say asylum when they're explicitly coming just to reunite with family for jobs and for birthright citizenship. We don't need an immigration judge. We don't need that's not asylum. We don't need to fix anything for that. I mean – Again, I think Congress, for messaging-wise, should do it anyway, and we should demand to be in this budget. But we need to fix the courts. This is all out of control. This is the government shutdown. Nothing else matters until we don't have a nation state. We're worse than the Roman Empire until we end this. But this is all part of the trend. I have my article out today kind of recapping um, Tuesday's show about the illegals now the courts treating them as a civil right that they now have super they, they don't just have constitutional rights which they shouldn't have they have super rights that even americans don't have so if you're an american you can't aid in a bet and literally make a money and send out letters and run a business off of you know helping people violate healthcare law tax law but now you can do it on behalf of um Illegal immigrants. It's a First Amendment. So I was joking around. I, you know, Maybe they'll say you could pull a gun, an illegal could pull a gun on a border patrol agent. They have super Second Amendment rights, meaning even where it's not appropriate, whereas Americans don't even have it where it is appropriate. I'm going to get to that in a minute. This crazy case out of New Jersey on the Third Circuit. So um, there you go. Now, maybe Trump will, maybe he won't issue the public charge order. I doubt he's going to issue the birthright citizenship one. But again, if you're once you agree that this is part of asylum, so then you're not enforcing it on the illegals. And, you know, we have impoverished legal immigrants, but pound per pound, you know, as Stephen Camerata will tell you, based on the educational levels, the poverty levels, the illegals are the worst. Everyone knows that. We don't enforce enforce it on them. I mean, it's it's in our laws. And like, you know, what I tell everyone is, you know, obviously you do need a law change if you want to change our legal immigration system, just the structure of the family-based visas to merit-based. You need the RAISE Act, sponsored by Tom Cotton and, and Lamar Smith. But a backdoor way to doing this is enforce current public charge laws. Because the main problem with chain migration is it keeps bringing in impoverished individuals just based on family ties. But public charge law supersedes that. It's You're only eligible to sp- bring in a relative, but not if they're a public charge. 
But again, illegal immigrants, if you're going to say, oh, they have a right to asylum, but they're all impoverished. And that's why they're coming, not because of persecution. This is just a perfect case study of what's going on here. So there's that. We don't have a movement focusing on this. I I say this all the time. Republicans and Trump could rape us in broad daylight, and the conservative media won't focus on it. We have more conservative writers and talkers and bloviators than ever before. More money behind it than ever before. More cable news talking heads than ever before. Nobody focuses on this in a forceful manner. There's that. And then there's like endless stories. I don't have time to get to, but you'll see in my Twitter feed. Every day, ICE and DEA and HSI, that's DHS's um, criminal unit, are arresting dozens upon dozens of drug traffickers, and every one of them are foreign nationals, often illegal aliens. And we keep saying that the criminal justice system on a federal level with drug charges are mainly gangbangers who are killing people with both murder and drugs that are the ones serving long prison sentences in the federal system, and a lot of them are foreign nationals. And these are the people that would be early released never sentenced to mandatories in the first place by this jailbreak bill. I'm not going to talk to you today about so much the new details of jailbreak, although you do have Chuck Grassley. Chuck Grassley, can you imagine this? Shaming Mitch McConnell, who's doing a bad enough job on every other issue, of all things, of all things, he's demanding that he spend the last two weeks in power well, I mean, the Senate, they're still going to have control, although they don't have control. Democrats always controlled it. But the last um, two weeks in power, focusing on jailbreak. And he actually said that he'd be willing, if it cuts off Senate some of the Senate clock, to not confirm two or three more judges, which was the holy grail of these people, if it means jailbreak. And Mike Lee retweeted Chuck Grassley's thing. So I tweeted back at both of them, and I said, okay, so we have an invasion at our border, many of whom get into the federal criminal system, a drug trafficking crisis, a budget crisis, judicial supremacy crisis. But this is the issue for which we're going to end the trifecta of control with. I, <laughs> folks, this is the shutdown. This is the shutdown of our government. This is the shutdown. And by the way, it's so cute. They're now they introduced standalone legislation. Remember Kevin McCarthy? Remember that? Just a couple weeks ago, standalone legislation to fund the border wall. Oops. Kevin McCarthy is spending his last week in control as the majority leader passing a budget bill that doesn't have it cuz that's all that matters. Standalone legislation is meaningless as we warned. But All of these, Newt Gingrich and all these pundits, even Laura Ingram, all these people on Fox News are praising Kevin McCarthy. Allowed him to promote himself there and crush Jim Jordan. We have a... See, Trump has potential to him. But if you don't harness it, he's going to wind up like everyone else. It's funny. Everyone... Everyone expected him to be a tyrant. 
the left still accuses him of that. Um, people on the right, like a lot of friends of mine, I remember saying during the primaries, the biggest thing they they uh, feared of him, the biggest thing they feared of him was the fact that um, he would just sack democracy. A lot of people feared that, the way he talked and everything. I laugh at them. I mean, you may as well have nominated Jeb, Jeb Bush. This guy hasn't vetoed a single bill. I mean, it's like, whatever you say, Congress, put on my desk and I'll sign it. I mean, what happened to this guy? But I'll tell you what happened to him. If you don't have a movement, he's a vehicle. You could take him to a good place. But if you don't drive that vehicle, the swamp will be driving him. And Jared Kushner will be driving him. And they're going to drive him to the gates of hell. Hence, we're getting all the liabilities of his philosophy, the tariffs. By the way, I just want to say, you know what's funny? Trump is supporting that in tandem with the farm bill. So this reminds me of Reagan's adage that if it moves, tax it. If it still moves, regulate it. If it's dead, subsidize it. So that's what he's doing. So you're taxing the farmers on the exports, the soybean exports, getting crushed now. Oh, but then let's pass a massive farm bill to subsidize them and distort the market. And then has the food stamp regime attached to it. And they had fake work requirements that they now took out of it. (laughs) This party, I mean, Orwell could not have written this story. Not as intricate as as it has played out. But that's where we are. We have a phony conservative movement we have a phony conservative donor class we have a phony conservative think tank class we have a phony conservative activist class and we have a phony conservative media class that is the problem and we have a phony conservative staff problem i'm gonna let you in on a little bit of inside sausage making that i'm gonna talk about myself a little bit not to talk about myself but to expose a very important problem in this movement that we have. Speaking of jailbreak, we have a major problem with congressional staff and executive branch staff, even when we think we're in power, even when we think we elected somewhat good guys that are on our, on our side. The number of people – see, if you have – a Democrat administration executive branch official or, you know, the staff of Senator Hirono and Senator Schumer and Senator Feinstein and, and Kamala Harris and Booker, these people are revolutionaries. They feel like they're part of a movement. They're not just like pushing papers and writing press releases and servicing their boss. But in doing so, they're, they're pushing – they're moving the ball down the, the field. They feel like they're part of a movement. When it comes to Republican staffers, they're a bunch of technocrats working for a boss as a job. Then they become lobbyists. And we attract very bad talent. Either they're dumb or have no values or both. So even if you get somewhat of a decent member, you don't have the staff to actually help them actualize their potential utility to the conservative cause. So this week, here's what happened. Here's what happened this week. Very interesting 
story I have for you. So I wrote an article on Jailbreak where I cited information from DOJ, BOP, showing you know the number of sex offenders in federal prison these days and that 72% of them are categorized as low risk. And as such, even under the front door provisions without the loopholes of the bill would be eligible for all the leniencies. So that data point that I used, I originally got from my friend in Senator Cotton's office that he, you know, communicated with um, DOJ. But he, there was a parallel email, the same data point from a different DOJ official that was obtained by a different office. And he forwarded that to me. And I said to him, okay, so should I cite this from Senator Kennedy, Senator Kennedy or from um, – from uh, Senator Cotton, right? And he was like, no, I studied from Senator Kennedy's office. So it, it was a miscommunication between the two of us. I thought from what he was saying that, um, you know, they were pushing it on to, to, to get sent out. They wanted this to be publicized. Um, and I didn't want to steal their thunder. You know, I was working with Khan's office. Now, wh- what I should have done is I should have said, oh, but you mean like they're allowing me to publish? They're saying I should publish this? I should have followed up. Um, and so I wrote something like, you know, a CR obtained an email from, you know, Senator Kennedy's office. And, you know, so whatever, that w- wasn't exactly accurate the way it really happened, as you'll find out. Um, and, you know, we – well, l- l- let me just first start off with, with the story. So suddenly – so Sen- Senator Cotton has good staff, at least one guy who's good. Senator Kennedy's office, you know, if you noticed, he's kind of conservative. He says some good things, and he's been against jailbreak, not as vocal as Cotton. But th- there's a staffing problem. And I noticed it a while back when I wrote a puff piece on Senator Kennedy, not because I'm trying to get connections or do anything. I don't, you know, I don't need connections to some dinky Senate staff. Um, But it's important to work together. It's important. There's so few of us. So often I'll, you know, a guy is doing, you know, I, I don't just bash people. Sometimes they say or do good things or they promote good legislation, and I'll promote it. So sometimes I'll reach out to the offices for comment, like, hey, if you want an on-the-record comment or you know, if you want to talk off the record and you know, strategize and help, because I'm not a journalist. Everyone knows that. I'm an advocate, and I'm unabashed about that. You know, you'll learn a lot of information from my pieces, hopefully, but you know, I'm, not, I'm open about that. I'm not a journalist. Um, you know, we're, we're all supposedly should be part of the same movement. So it's always very telling how the good staffers you could tell that feel they're part of a cause. They'll reach out to me even without being asked, wow, this is really great you're doing this, Daniel. How could I help? Or, hey, you know, you should know this is going on. And, and that's how you work inside with the outside, and you work together as a movement. The left only does this. The establishment only does this. So I wrote a piece a couple months ago praising Kennedy for his comments on jailbreak. And it was, it was telling that nobody reached out to me from that office. Like you would think, how often 
does he get accolades on anything? He's kind of obscure, much less this issue where 90% of the so-called conservative infrastructure is on the other side of it. So you're really alone on an island. I'm literally the only guy publicly who's going to be helping you. You would think you'd like come running to me. Again, not, I don't need that because, oh, I need, oh, embrace me, thank me. No, it's because for the cause, we need to work together. It's good for a movement. So what happened was, you know, I, I emailed the office to, to maybe get a comment, whatever. I never heard back from them. Emailed them a couple times, never heard back from them. And then, okay, I published the article, and then I CC'd as much of the staff as I could find. Um, you know, maybe not all of them are 100% current. It's it's Congressional Quarterly's uh, directory. That's what I use to if I don't happen to know them. Um, the emails and I never no one ever said like wow great piece wow thanks so much and again the point is not it's not a pay for play if you're bad if you're doing something wrong I'm going to bash you even if you reach out to me and if you're doing something you know right um, I'm going to I'm going to highlight it if I think it's needed for the cause irrespective of whether you snub me Um, it's not personal it's not about that but what that tells me is that you have horrible staff that you're not being proactive, that you're not reaching out, or that you're downright scared, and that's what I'm going to get to in a minute, scared to have your name even privately, you know, maybe it will get out, much less publicly attached to a figure like me. So with that background, now understand the comms director for Kennedy's office reached out to me and said, can you call me? So I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm about to get on media, um, what's up i could call you in the afternoon and like you goofed up on this we never gave you anything can you issue a retraction fix this and i, I was kind of like i was a little bit hurt i guess you'd say but that's not my main point i was like okay wait a minute so you are literally on an island here we're allies you're on an island i'm the only one being a voice for what your boss believes in and this is how you treat me I, I, I look, I totally understand, and I called her afterwards and we talked that, you know, maybe you didn't first know that I got it from the guy in Cotton's office and the, maybe there was a misunderstanding between the two of us. And I understand, and we issued the retraction and we fixed it. We said, no, it was from Cotton's office, not Ken, Kennedy's office. And fine, I'm, I'm always willing to do that. Part of the thing is she, she knows that, you know, she's not dealing with a Washington Post person. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But I'm thinking, like, she treats me as if I'm like an enemy media, not like, hey, this is great. I really appreciate what you're doing. Let's work together on this. But could you just issue some retraction? We don't want that to get out. And that's fine. But no, I called her. She was rude as anything. And I said, so I, I finally got so upset. I kind of said um, sarcastically, oh, so do you want me to issue a retraction on my story I did a couple months ago? Did I get anything wrong in that? And and then she was like, kind of, there's kind of silence. And I said, you know, I reached out to you guys and – you know, you never dealt with me. It's like the only time you'll ever reach out to me is to get upset about this when, like, you know, what, like, why are you doing this? And you're like, well, you reached out to the legislative director, not the communication shop. And, and the way she was talking was literally as if I'm a reporter, like a liberal media person. And that in itself is a problem. Again, not on a personal level. That tells me that either they're stupid or they, the staff, they, they're not moving people. 
You should know what I'm doing and you should know the space I'm operating in and you should know on an issue that I'm the only ally on, the only effective voice on. You would reach out, hey, you want to come on my show? And other people do this. The, the minority of members and staff that are truly movement people, you'll see. This tells me they so badly didn't want to have their name associated with me. Because that's nonsense. They sent this around to all those offices. And, and and again, just journalistically, you know, I misunderstood. And I don't want to blame my friend in Cotton's office. It was, you know, I, I, I misunderstood it. And it wasn't, you know... You, you got to be a hundred percent accurate when you when you say exactly what you got who you got it from. But I got the impression they they did it for distribution. But it's like no, they just don't want to be associated with me. And folks, this is the problem that we have. Even when you have a senator that's somewhat good, but you know Kennedy needs a lot of handholding. He's a horrible staff. It's very problematic. And this is a broader problem we have that a lot of people on the Hill will talk about. There's a dearth of talent and energy because of the pay scale. A lot of you are going to find this shocking, and you might not even like me saying this, but it is very true. I have an article I'm going to link to in show notes where I show this. Whether we like it or not, we have a behemoth anti-constitutional big government. But that big government is the executive branch of government. At the end of the day, you need a Congress. If you want to restore Article 1 and oversight, you got to have the talent and resources to do it. I mean, ironically, I will tell you the one branch that needs more money is Congress. The legislative branch of government is going to surprise you. What's happened is, especially since Republicans have controlled the House for most of the last two decades – um, three decades really, they have they, – they, they're so scared of being accused of raising their own salaries that they that they never do. But I'm not talking about the congressman's own salary of 180000 Fine. Keep it that way. I'm talking about the staff. The staff – see, if you look at the executive branch pay scale, like I have a bunch of neighbors that work for Social Security because their headquarters is in uh, Woodholm. They're always off. They're always home. I don't know what they do for a living. Like, I know guys that every year they could take three weeks at a time because they accrue all this vacation. But forget about accruing the vacation. I mean, if you have a normal job, you usually can't, even if you officially have the days, just the workload, you can't do that. But they, they have five people doing the job of one person. Whereas in the legislative branch, the truth be told, Republican or Democrat, they work very hard. The staffers, you, it's the opposite. You have one guy doing the job of five people. Now, for Democrats, it's not such a problem because they have a party leadership and an outside movement structure to give them the talking points, the policy, the bogus studies, the donors, the everything they need to succeed. The strategies. On our side, leadership is subversive. They're against us. So you need to swim upstream. So you need to have your own staff that does this. And the problem is, you know, per that type of professionalism that you need and that type of job, and especially like the lawyers and the councils on the on the if you're a conservative office, you could earn so much more money in the private sector. So this is why they come for two years and they become lobbyists. They leave the hill. Everyone wants to you know talk about the lobbying problem, but the reason why the lobbyists control everything is because you have this 23 year old low paid staffer. 
comes in there and, you know, these outside lobbyists come in and they're like, okay, Sonny, this is how you write the bill. And they're like, okay, you know. I mean, they don't know any better. They're not movement leaders. They're random losers, a lot of them, not all of them. And the exceptions will reach out to me and work with me. The legislative branch of government is $4.7 billion. Just one branch of government, Health and Human Services, is $78 billion. Not the program. The programs, if you count the mentor programs, it's like a trillion, Medicare, Medicare. I'm talking about the discretionary budget, the bureaucracy itself. Department of Education, $71 billion. You see what I mean? 15 or so times the size of the legislative branch, just one department of the executive branch. Ironically, you know, as, as of now, they need more money. Now, there, there's also an extra problem where a lot of Republicans want to, especially the conservative ones, want a talking point that I'm saving money. So they'll return 20% of their office budget. And, you know, Ida, there's, there's a friend of mine who's a very good House member. He told me, Daniel, I never give back a penny of it. Because look, you know, these guys work hard and I, I give it all back in terms of bonuses. To my hardworking staff. It's not for him. You know, if the federal government's going to be doing this stuff, you know, Article 1 is the most constitutional thing. I mean, that's Congress exists. It has to engage in oversight. But that's the problem. These staffers are just horrible. If you don't know who, meaning also just you're, you're not servicing your boss right. If you want your guy to be known in the conservative movement and, and known and have established a base of support, you want to reach out to a guy like me. And it, like the fact that she totally didn't care, even after I kind of explained like she, like a little raw emotion on the call, like I was upset, there was no like, hey, let's work. And, and so when I sent her the retraction, I emailed it to her. I, I felt like just really blowing her up. But instead, I just said, hey, here it is. Um, you know, sorry again for the oversight. You know, whatever. Never responded to my email. Like she demanded that I email it to her and then it never responded. Like it should bother you. You should you should not want to act that way because anyone else with more of an ego, you're going to turn them off and you're going to lose one of the few allies you'll ever have on this issue for your boss if you cared about your boss. Now, again, I'm not like that. So, you know, if Kennedy does anything worthwhile i'm gonna spotlight it irrespective of how i was treated by by the staff just because there, there's a cause greater than that but most people aren't like that and 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 you should be concerned about that that is not good calm strategy and this is the problem they don't want to be caught dead with someone like me well now i understand Now I understand. So um, I, I just say this. All to continue the theme of how we have a comatose conservative movement at every angle, including those who actually work in the policy and politics. Even for these better conservative offices. Just such a, such a shame. Okay, let's uh, move on before we uh, run out of time here. There's so much to get to, man. Um, Got to find a way to fit it in quicker. <laughs> so we had this piece earlier this morning, and we talked about on Tuesday this growing narrative 
of the courts creating BS rights beyond the imagination of the BS rights that the past generation of judicial tyrants concocted, um, all sorts of things. You have a right to a press pass. You have a right to uh, um, aid and abet illegal immigration. You have a right to immigrate. Uh, you certainly have a right to an abortion and gay marriage. You have a right to force someone else to service your your you know gay wedding or whatever. Everything's a right. Everything that the left wants to do, they can't just argue for the veracity of you know the policy virtues, but they actually have to tell you that you know this is this is it. This is you you can't do anything else. It's mandated by the Constitution. Everything is in the Constitution. Well, except what really is a right and what is in the Constitution. These very same courts that are denuding the states of any right to they, they can't even they can't even prevent ballot harvesting, which by the way is coming up in the news in North Carolina. Actually, a Republican, it looks like, engaged in fraud for once doing it in the liberal media and the liberals finally care about it. Maybe we could realize that North Carolina actually pursuant to law, this was illegal. But the fourth, but we're told that you can't follow the law of North Carolina, that you have to follow the Fourth Circuit law, which says you have to accept these ballots. By the way, you know, all these people crying. And look, and so far, there's no evidence Mark Harris himself engaged in that. And I hope, you know, he didn't. And I don't know. The whole thing looks pretty bad there. I haven't followed it closely enough. But what I do know is that Democrats hold the governorship of that state. Because of ballots that pursuant to law are ineligible and really McCrory, the Republican, should have been reelected. But we follow the Fourth Circuit because we don't follow the law. We say the courts are the law. So anyway, states can't do anything. And we'll get to that at another point. That that Fourth Circuit, the North Carolina ballot harvesting business. But what could states do? So states can't do anything. But there's two things states are allowed to do, things that they manifestly cannot do, which is a thwart federal immigration law, as we spoke about Tuesday, and B, rip away, rip away the Second Amendment, self-defense from Americans. I apologize that I have not had time to get into this earlier. I didn't realize how bad this was. And if any of you listeners from New Jersey want to weigh in, um, send me an email, dharowitz at crtv.com. Uh, tweet me at armconservative. So I saw yesterday, just as I was making this point, Third Circuit you know, upholds gun magazine ban. So I was like, oh, well, this is like the Fifth Circuit. Every, you know, I don't mean number five. I mean, the out of all the circuits, there's been about five of them. Um, the second, the seventh, the ninth, um, couple more dc i think um a whole number of circuits as you well know have been doing this they're upholding magazine capacity bans they're upholding um so-called assault weapons ban they're upholding all of the anti-carry laws and they're citing from heller's dissent right so heller never happened and as you well know um john roberts and maybe one or two others on the court are refusing to to give enough votes to ever take up the appeals. So they're literally empowering every single lower court just to do what it wants. And 
again, just so you know, this is exactly what a chord is for. What exactly what a chord is for. When you have an individualized right of an American that is explicitly written in the Constitution. You can't deny it. You can't deny it's there. Now, a state could have a reason, right? If you're a felon, if you're if you're dangerous, if there's a reason on an individual level. But to carte blanche say nobody could carry and nobody could own this and nobody could – I mean, right? that is – I have a right to petition a court. Now, as I said before, the courts aren't supreme. So you know, if the other branches want to push back, fine. But then we should apply that to every other issue as well, right? It's got to be balanced. I'm fine with that. But meaning the reason why these laws are unconstitutional is not because of Heller. It's not because the court said so. It's because it's unconstitutional. As a body politic, all of us, all the people, all the states, all three branches need to get together and agree to that. One of the avenues is to go to court. So, again, illegals have a right to immigrate, but you don't have a right to own a gun. So I thought this was just another one of those cases. Then I looked at the case, and I was like, holy smokes, I didn't know about this. This law in New Jersey is utterly insane. So most of the laws, what all the other blue states, Maryland, Connecticut, New York, they've barred the sale and purchase of magazines that have more uh, higher capacity than 10 rounds. Um, within the state boundaries, and it's prospective. So you prospectively can't have it shipped or purchased. So, you know, what I do is um, I'll just have, you know, all my magazines are 15 capacity, 9 millimeters. so I have them mailed to my in-laws in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and when they come up, they'll, you know, they, they give it to me. This New Jersey law retroactively bars the ownership of such magazines. So forget about loopholes of purchasing it. You cannot own one. You have until December 10th, until next week, to dispose of them. Otherwise, that magazine that you originally legally purchased will be regarded as illicit contraband and you'll be regarded, you'll be deemed as a fourth degree felon. And there's very few outs of that you know uh, loopholes you know for certain law enforcement and things like that um i mean we're talking about nine millimeter and that this is in your home i mean it, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that's heller you can't say it's not heller and it's just it nothing it's unbelievable and there, there's a whole bunch of problems with this law because it conflicts another law in other words, New Jersey already has another law that says it's unlawful to transport or dispose of large-capacity ammunition magazines. And now they say if you don't dispose of it, you're a felon. So the, the, my understanding is the way those two are written, it would cause – it's, it's a problem. It's just not even written carefully. So aside from a clear violation of – again, I don't even like calling it the Second Amendment. James Madison didn't believe in the Bill of Rights, and actually I agree with him. Part of why we have so much confusion of what's a right and what's not is because he was concerned that once you start enumerating them – see, it was known. Everyone knew what an unalienable right was and what it wasn't. 
life, liberty, property, and the right to defend them. Period. Nothing else, even voting, was not an unalienable right. Everyone knew that. His concern was once you start enumerating them, then it means, oh, it's not self-evident, as the Declaration said. It has to be enumerated by government, so it comes from government. And then that's how we have all this legal positivism, that it's not a negative right, it's a positive. And then the few real negative rights, you know, the, the courts don't even recognize. So um, that's the thing. You either have to dispose them, crush them, and this, this is just – I mean it is off the wall, completely off the wall, this whole thing. Just shocking, shocking on many levels. So that is this new um, so-called law. So in addition to the gun problem, self-defense, unalienable rights, this ve- – I have to think about this, but this might be an ex post facto problem. I mean when they had prohibition and that was done with a constitutional amendment, right here the states and the courts are just amending the constitution without an amendment. When they had prohibition on alcohol, they, they didn't go after those that – it was the purchase of – uh, and and sale tra- sale and tra- transfer of new new alcohol. I mean, you can't do this. I mean, this is an this is an individualized right. If you want to know what a court is for, you know, not to rule on abstract policies, but like you know, dude, I, I'm an individual, and you're now regulating inactivity. It's not even an activity. Like, okay, you're not allowed to go outside the home with a gun. This I can't even I. I can't own something that was owned legally. I have to get rid of it. How do you do that? And yet, this is where it was. And look, to his credit, there was one Trump judge, and he was the lone dissenter. Um, and uh, as he noted, what's amazing, so notice what they do with the immigration cases. So typically when you have a, a real, a fundamental right, um, now, a state or a federal government could go after a fundamental right. Again, I mean, you could be locked up. I mean, that's a fundamental right. You're thrown in jail. But there's due process and there's, you know, there's a certain – so there's um, there's a balancing test. There's strict scrutiny. There's inter- intermediate uh, scrutiny. And then there's the lowest level, which is a rational basis test. If there's any rational reason that the government would ever have to do it, they have the right to do it. And what they do here is they – they treat – and the courts have been doing this. They treat the Second Amendment like a second-class right, meaning the BS rights of gay marriage, of transgenderism, of abortion, of a right to immigrate, which aren't rights at all. They subject governmental actions to strict scrutiny like a real right. And yet when it comes to the Second Amendment, in this case, they subject it to intermediate scrutiny, and then really it's rational basis test. They say it's intermediate, but it's BS, very flimsy um, – data they provide so we're going to link to a memo from a new jersey based uh firearms organization to uh to vet this out for you guys very important stuff this is the association of new jersey rifle and pistol clubs so you can see what's going on and and those of you who are from there let me know you know what's going on there so that's what's going on with the courts 
This will be a big test for John Roberts. See, I could picture Roberts wanting to take this case up because Roberts like likes going narrow, and this is so egregious, he might be able to go after the retroactivity part and the home part and not rule on all the other cases, which he might do. But, um, I mean, this is the national emergency. This is the shutdown. We don't have a movement. Even on guns, that was the one issue we had a movement on. Now we don't. So there's that. There's there's so much more to get to. Gosh, I don't even know how to... Man, I didn't get through my whole stack here. Um... You know, Democrat Peter DeFazio, the incoming Transportation Infrastructure Committee chairman, is committed to raising the gas tax. No lessons learned from France. It's a whole other thing going on. But I just want to close with the fact that, you know, Trump is pushing these tariffs. What was the whole reason to push the tariffs? He said the trade deficit. Now, as you well know, anyone who is educated knows the trade deficit is a stupid measure. The, the only problem with the trade deficit is the fiscal deficit. There's no problem with them buying up our stuff and investing in America, a.k.a. imports, because, in fact, imports are a sign of a growing economy. So, you know, for example, if I'm doing I, – I have a trade deficit with Lowe's. All my home improvement stuff, I go there. I buy stuff from them. I never sell them anything. I only give them money. I have a trade deficit with Lowe's. That, that's what a stupid thing that is. Now, if I'm not doing well, I have to. I can't do any extra projects. If I'm doing the better, I'm doing the bigger the trade deficit I'm going to have with Lowe's or this, you know, whatever other vendor I like to spend money at. Same thing on a national level. But in the irony of all ironies, now, now the only problem of the deficit is what are they investing in? Are they investing in more productivity, or are they investing in treasuries to service our debt? which further increases the debt and incentivizes more people to invest in our debt to fund Democrat dependency and Democrat voters. That's the problem. The fiscal deficit, which Trump doesn't seem to want to address, even though he promised and introduced budget blueprints doing that, and then he signs every bill that embarrasses his blueprints. So such hypocrisy on his part. I'm sorry. But anyway, the joke is, this month the U.S. trade deficit reached a 10-year high in October. $55.5 $55.5 billion. Now, some of that, to be fair, is because it's a humming economy. So we have more of a need for stuff, which is good. But Trump thinks it's a bad thing. I mean, he can't have it both ways. You know, take credit for the advancing economy, and advancing economy causes a, a trade deficit, and he complains about the trade deficit. But there is an element to the deficit that is concerning in that our exports are down. And that's due to his tariffs. CNBC article here. Here's where tariffs are taking a toll across the country, according to the Fed. Boston Fed. Manufacturing and an industrial distributors, distributor said that they expected tariffs to contribute 50 to 100 basis points to price increases for their products. A few contacts continue to express concern about tariffs and recent potential changes to trade policy. Philadelphia. Um, tariffs remain a major concern for many producers. Um, Cleveland import tariffs have had mixed effects. Some manufacturers reported higher demand as import competition subsided, but others imported reported that tariffs led to input cost increases in supply chain gaps. And look, I said from day one, you know, I'm not like a dyed-in-the-wool 
anything with the word trade in it, like anything with the word criminal justice in it, like anything with the word immigration reform, oh, I'm for it. You know, I, I'm suspicious of these multilateral 20-person agreement, 20-country agreements that throw in a lot of other garbage and their sovereignty issues. But in general, bilateral agreements, you know, trade is good. I mean, Trump himself says that. He just said he's going to negotiate better things. And I think in, in some places, like with Europe, you saw that, where, you know, sometimes even if you're pro-trade, you got to get a little bit tough to get a good trade agreement. But to actually implement all these tariffs, I mean, tariffs are not good. That's clear. You might, I mean, it might be a, a strategy to sometimes threaten them. But if you're actually going actually to go through with a lot of them, I mean, it's, it's causing a lot of damage. You can't deny that. So really, I mean, th- th- this is what this is his one issue to die on. You know, we're not getting tough with China militarily, as we should. Instead, the tariffs, which hurt us. So anyway, that's what that. A lot more happening. Maybe we'll discuss some of this more tomorrow on Foreign Policy Friday. Send me your feedback, as always. We need to build our own movement. We need to build our own staff because we don't have good staff that do this professionally because they stink. We the people need to take back our government. Again, let's work together on strategies. Till next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.